Now, does anybody know what Jonas Hanway is famous for? Anybody? He is famous for this. He didn't invent the umbrella, but he introduced it into England. And while an umbrella in England should have been welcome as a wonderful gift for rainy skies, here's what happened. When he would walk down a street in England, underneath that umbrella, he'd be pelted with dirt and stones. True story. And a similar reaction met the Christian uh, youth organization called the Boys Brigade. Friends, anyone who is different, anyone who looks different or thinks differently or lives differently is often regarded as eccentric, mad, or dangerous. Now, you know that. All I'm doing is introducing and trying to grab your attention for what we're going to be looking at this morning. Listen to the words of Jesus for all of us who are in Christ. Ready? Here's what he says. I hope you're listening. John chapter 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Friends, if you are a follower of Christ... There is something that is guaranteed from the lips of Jesus that will eventually come your way, and that is persecution. You will experience it. And we've been looking at 10 ways that fully committed followers need to live towards those in the church. This is Romans chapter 12, and as Paul the apostle works his way through Romans 12, the circle expands like a ripple in a pond. This is the very next ripple of expansion. Seven ways that now fully committed believers need to live towards those in the world. And the very first two of those are found in our text this morning. Romans chapter 12, verse 14. If you would have that open, let's read it together. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, what do we learn in these two obligations that we all have towards those in the world? Number one, we learn that we have to learn to pray for those who hurt us. Pray for those who hurt us. Well, how do you see that in that first phrase? Well, let me introduce this a little bit more. Michael Horton, you may, you may have heard of him. He is a prolific author, theologian. And he's also somebody that has his hands on the pulse of our generation, our culture. And he wrote a book called Made in America. Now, here's what he found. Here's, here's what he discovered in this book that he, that he writes about. Is that American culture has gone a long ways to shape American Christianity. Well, that just makes sense. Culture tends to have an effect on a religion. Except for the entire New Testament tells the religion, Christianity, to impact the culture. What Horton found is that the culture is primarily impacting the church. And here's what he says. You ready? I quote you. Quote him. In consumer religion, Christianity becomes trivialized. Now listen and hang in. Its great mysteries become cheap slogans. 
you know, like let go, let God. Not a lot of depth of theology in that one. And its parishioners, now unashamedly called audiences, have come to expect dazzling testimonies, happy anecdotes, and fail-proof schemes for successful living that's going to satisfy spiritual consumption. You know, Jesus never taught that. He never taught in that way, in a way that's going to please your flesh. In fact, he spoke of the high cost in following him. So the question that we're going to consider this morning, all through this sermon, is one that I would ask you to write down in your bulletins. You ready? Here it is. I'm going to give it to you twice. Are we willing to pay the cost that will come from committing ourselves fully to serving God? I'll say it again. Are we willing, friends, I hope you're thinking about this. Man, I really don't like it when we're just static. You know, you don't interact with a sermon. You've got to interact. Are we willing to pay the cost that will come from committing ourselves fully to serving God? <laughs> now, you might say, you might think right at the outset, well, Pastor Tim, I don't really recall experiencing persecution. Can I suggest that as you lower your walls because you know you love me, that maybe you're not fully committed to serving God? Because it's not a possibility that Jesus says that fully committed disciples might experience persecution. He guarantees it. But it's only for fully committed Christians. Lukewarm Christians, you're safe. You're right where the world, right where the devil wants you to be. You're not a threat. So if you're sitting on the fence, you're in a good position for an easy life. You come off that fence, and here it comes. How do you respond when it does? Let's look at what Paul says in verse 14. There is a world of wonder in that first little word called bless. It's actually two words in the Greek. Or it's a word made up of two parts. Okay, the first one means good, and the other one means to speak. So in other words, to bless somebody is to speak good of that person. Nothing complicated. Friends, there's nothing complicated in this sermon. It's very, very difficult to live. But it's not high theology. To bless means to speak good of that person. By the way, it's the same word used for giving thanks in communion. Same word used for giving praise to God. <clears throat> in fact, interestingly enough, when you look at the Greek word, which is right behind me, it looks a little familiar, doesn't it? The word eulogy comes to mind. It's what we do in funerals. And when we have an opportunity to speak well of the person who died and speak about how God impacted your life through that person. It may help to know that the word bless, it's used in different ways in Scripture. When we bless God, we ascribe to Him all the praise He is due. We all know that. 
When God blesses us, he bestows his favor upon us. But friends, when we bless one another, which we ought to be in the habit of doing, we are praying, I get this, we're praying that God would pour out his goodness, mercy, and grace upon that person. That's what it means to bless one another. So if I bless Roger, Roger, I'm praying that God would pour out his mercy, his grace, and his goodness in your life. Jack, when you bless Bob Seymour, you're praying that God would pour out God's goodness, mercy, and grace on Bob's life. That's what it means to bless one another. Now, can I, can I share something with you? I might pop some of the bubbles that you have. I kind of doubt I will, but there's a possibility that I will when I admit to you that when someone persecutes me, me, I do want God to pour out something on them. It's just never his goodness, grace, and mercy. I'm very sophisticated in my retaliatory prayers, as perhaps you are as well. To bless our persecutors, friends, listen, it goes completely against our human nature. Let's do a little quiz. You ready? Do you have somebody in your life that has persecuted you? What face just came to mind? I want you to hold that face right there. How often do you and have you prayed that God would pour out his goodness, his mercy, and his grace upon their lives? Now, friends, listen, you're fortunate. You're hearing this now for about 10 minutes. I've been studying this all week, and it has been brutal. This is difficult. Our human nature recoils from this thought. Because it's only when we're dependent on the Spirit of God who can give us all the grace we need to live the way that He's commanded. That's only when we can bless those who persecute us. You know, the, the Roman churches, Paul's writing out of this context, thus the name Romans, the Roman churches were experiencing horrific and brutal persecution. Let me explain a little bit of that. In that day... One Roman historian said this, Christians were hated for their crimes, who the mob called Christians. That's who was hated for their crimes. I'll tell you what their crime was in a moment. Another historian spoke, quote, of a race of men who belonged to a new and evil superstition. <clears throat> this is the way Romans viewed Christians. When Paul wrote this, The Roman government hated Christians. The Roman citizens hated Christians. Loyal Roman citizens saw Caesar as emperor, Caesar the emperor as God. Because of the blessings that Rome had brought to them. And so here's what they did. Once a year, every Roman inhabitant had to burn a pinch of incense to the godhead of Caesar and afterwards say, Caesar is Lord. They would go to a temple and do this. And guess what? When they did this and it was completed, they would actually get a certificate that they were a royal citizen. 
But guess what? The Christians wouldn't do it. The Christians refused to do this, so they were branded of all names as pagans. You know what a pagan is? Someone who worships a false god. So the, Ro- the Christians were viewed by the Roman government as pagans and disloyal. And one of the clearest indicators, now get this, one of the clearest indicators of how committed we are to Jesus Christ is how we respond to persecution. But Paul doesn't have in mind here persecution that comes to Christians because they're foolish. After all, if you're treated unkindly because of reckless, obnoxious behavior in the name of Christ, you cannot call that persecution. There's a church in California that hires planes to fly banners all around the city asking people to pray for the death of immoral politicians. That church is reviled, and they rightfully should be. That's not what Paul has in mind. Jesus, knowing that all of us, if we're seriously following him, are going to face persecution, he said this. Look on the screen behind me. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep, In the midst of lambs, carnivorous pack animals. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Don't be reckless, Paul is saying. Jesus is saying. Don't be foolish. Don't be obnoxious. I had to learn this when I worked in psychiatric residential work. We weren't allowed to share our faith. I was called into the director's office twice because I kept winning kids to the Lord. But the way I would win them to the Lord is they would see something different in me and a handful of other counselors and they would ask about it. And we could do that. If they asked us about our faith, we were free to share it. But there were other Christians on staff that would come in with their Bibles and they would tear the Bibles out and they would preach and teach and they would get in trouble. Wise as serpents and innocent as doves. But that's not persecution if we live obnoxiously. But let me ask you, if you were to be asked by somebody to define what biblical persecution is, what would you answer? How would you define it? For instance, is it when somebody cuts you off on the road when you're trying to get to an an important sales meeting? Or when somebody blames you for something that you did not do? Is persecution, rejection from other people just because you're different from them? Or or when you stand up for what is right and people get angry with you? Is that persecution? Let's try to answer that question. By the way, friends, listen. If you ever get stuck in Scripture, you don't know what it's saying, always know this principle. Scripture will interpret Scripture. Go to other places God's got your answer for you. If we back up one verse, three weeks ago, but one verse, and look at it again, look at verse 13, where Paul has said to us, seek to show hospitality. Do you remember that we learned that that word seek is the same word they would use for police pursuing criminals, army pursuing uh, vanquished soldiers, or for hunters pursuing game animals, and meant to pursue Chase down, press hard after another person. Here's what I discovered. 
The word seek is the exact same word persecute. There's no difference other than context. So to persecute somebody means to pursue that person with evil intent. That's what persecution is. I'm just giving you the biblical definition of it. <coughs> it's what happens to Christians who won't go out to the bars and strip clubs with his team on the business trips. It's what happens when a mom won't support and help out at a raunchy school play. It's what happens when we are passed over a promotion because we will not sacrifice our families to work 70 hours a week and the boss gets us back for it. It's what happens, friends. Believe me, if you stand up publicly against abortion, you're going to know persecution. Or if you publicly proclaim as Miss California that the biblical design for marriage is only between a man and a woman, you're going to feel the backlash and you're going to know persecution. Fully committed followers of Christ will experience persecution. But have you ever wondered why? We learned this in verse 2, where we learn not to be conformed to the world because the world is a dynamic, live power that hates and opposes everything about God, including Christians. And it's energized by the prince of the power of the air, whom we call Satan. So what are we to do? Now, friends, look back at verse 14, if you would, please. What are we to do toward those who pursue us with evil intent? Look what Paul says. He tells us where to bless them. He tells us where to bless them. They're pursuing us with a motive to hurt, fueled by the world and Satan, because they hate God and Christ in us. And Paul tells us to pray for God's goodness, mercy, and grace to come to them. You know, Paul knows better than any of us ever will, I, I think, or at least better than any of us do right now. He knows what it's like to be persecuted. And you know what he does? He takes a coin and he flips it. And in the second part of verse 14, he shows us what not to do. He just told us what to do. He told us to pray for those who hurt us. Now he's going to flip it over and he's going to show us not what not to do. Now let me, let me take just a moment to put a bigger, a bigger bracket around your thinking. You know where I've been hurt the most deeply? By people who have evil intent? In the church. I've seen the worst things happen in church that I don't think I see in the world. It's amazing what we're capable of doing with one another. You know where I've seen the second worst things happen? In biological families. It's amazing the, the depth of my ability to hurt my wife, my children. This isn't just the world. And Paul's about to teach his friends what I hope you take to heart because we've all got to learn, how do you live? How do you respond with those who hurt us? And what not to do with those who hurt us? Look what he says. And mean it from the heart is point number two. He says, bless and do not curse them. 
Now, friends, listen, please. Cursing somebody in Paul's day was a lot different than cursing somebody in our culture. Paul's not referring to vulgarity and swearing and profanity. See, in the pagan world, to curse somebody meant to ask a deity, a god, to bring down doom on that person. That's what it meant to curse. It was a wish for a person to come to evil and ruin. It's similar to what we do today when we hope and sometimes pray, perhaps. I hope he gets what he gave to me. Or I hope she gets what's coming. That's cursing. It's just not with vulgarity. See, Jewish rabbis had a really neat and interesting saying. They told of the drowning of the Egyptians in the Red Sea as they were pursuing the Israelites. And as the story goes, when the Egyptians were destroyed, the angels began to rejoice until God lifted up his hand and said this, the work of my hands are sunk in the sea and you would sing. Silence came to the heavens. It's praying that God would curse, harm or ruin somebody who has pursued us to do evil on us. That's what Paul says, don't do. And rather, bless that hurtful person by asking God to pour out his goodness, pour out his grace, pour out his mercy on that person. Now, friends, listen. To bless the person doesn't mean to ask God to make them more successful in their persecution. That's not what it means. Rather, it means that God would interrupt that person's harmful motivations with grace, rescue them, and give them salvation. And now we know how radical it was to those Jews who heard Jesus say, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Radical. But this is the way of a fully committed disciple. This is the way that we not ought to not shoot. What am I trying to say? This is not the way that we have an option of living as Christians. It's the way that God says we must live as Christians. Friends, it was one thing to refrain from cursing an enemy. Now listen. But completely another thing to actually pray for blessing. You know the Arabs have a custom that endures today? You may have seen it on television. They're not always sincere. But they'll touch the head, the lips, and the chest. And when they do that, they're saying, I think highly of you, I speak well of you, and my heart beats for you. Wouldn't it be incredible if we could do that? Filled with the power of the Spirit of God. Why? Because we've put ourselves on the altar exclusively for God and said, God, I want my life to serve you. I think, speak, and my heart beats for that person despite what they're doing. What a way to love the world. I, wanna, I want you to watch up on the screen 
as I read through what John Calvin says about this verse. I've said that this is more difficult than to forego revenge when one has been injured. There may be some who keep their hands from violence and are not driven by a desire to do injury, but they would still like destruction or loss to befall their enemies from some other source. Now, friends, in my experiences, both personally and with people who are Christians, the vast majority, I think, fall into this category. While we will not usually raise our hands in retaliatory revenge, there is a wish deep down that somebody, namely God, would give it to them. And friends, that's a violation of verse 14. That's a cursing of those who persecute us. Recently, Denise and I were invited to a special occasion where there are going to be a lot of people, and uh, we knew that one of the families, one of the couples that were going to be there was a couple that had left this church while I've been the senior pastor and left it angrily, refusing to talk to me. All the way down to this event, I'm telling Denise, I'm going to be cordial, but I hope they come up and talk to me because I want to tell them what a disgrace to Christ's kingdom they are. I even mapped out my words. I had it all planned. And I got to this event, and here comes this couple. And filled with righteous indignation, I went up to them, and before my mouth could open, grace flooded my heart. And what came out was, how are you doing? I miss you. And somehow I meant it. <laughs> because I kept asking, even when he tried to pull away. I went after him. Oh, I wanted to go after him earlier. <laughs> Friends, nothing in my flesh was involved in that moment because everything in my flesh wanted nothing of the Spirit. And it was the grace of God in the moment, not before, I wish it came in, while we were riding down there because I did a whole lot of sinning with my mouth. But the grace of God came at the moment, flooding my heart, and what came out was blessing those who have hurt me. When I bless somebody by praying for them, I have a desire in my heart both to please God and honor that person. And friends, this is why Paul showed us the foundation for fully committed Christian living in verse 2. Do you remember verse 2? Be not conformed, do not be pressed into the pattern of this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind, how? By the reading of the word, how? By the meditating, the chewing, the processing, and the living of the word of God, because when we live the truth of God, it finds its way to our hearts, 
for transformation. That's the only way you can bless those who persecute us. There's no other source of power available. And when the mind is renewed, guess what? We see that persecutor who has pursued us with harmful intent. We see that person in dire need of salvation and who's going to spend eternity in hell if not for the grace of God. And when our minds are renewed, we, we understand how horrible that eternity will be. And when our minds are renewed, we know that God is in control. We're not experiencing anything that the Son of God already hasn't. And when minds are being renewed, we have the knowledge that God was right there in the midst of that persecution, seeing how we're going to respond, being there to give us the power to respond in a way that pleases Him. And it's minds that are being renewed and the knowledge of God that so powerfully transforms our hearts so that we actually can have compassion and love towards the one that's, that's hurting us. Hearts with genuine desires to return blessing instead of cursing. Not, not some monumental control over our flesh. That doesn't work. But an inward out work of grace. So that we can live like Stephen, who while being pelted to death with rocks for his faith, could cry out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He didn't bite his tongue. Friends, listen, he didn't exercise some monumental control over his own flesh. By not cursing that mob. He was fully surrendered to God and God was working through his heart, transforming him by grace, being a display of God's grace. Do you remember who was there authorizing that execution? The Apostle Paul. Do you know that St. Augustine, one of our church fathers, said that the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen? Because it was in the display of blessing those who are hurting you that God's grace floods your heart, floods their hearts, and brings people to the kingdom. And there was one who displayed this to an even greater degree before Stephen did. We read it in Scripture, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, our Lord. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How would you like to bless those who have nailed your, your hands and your feet and spit on you and beaten you and stand there mocking and laughing and ridiculing while your clothes are being divided? Maybe it was that display of unmatched love and grace and blessing his executioners that opened up the eyes of one of the criminals so that that criminal would say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Friends, if you get nothing else this morning out of this sermon, get this. Transformed hearts live in the power of the Holy Spirit and they bless those who persecute and they become a display of his work 
in our lives and they become an impacting, powerful agent for the kingdom of God. It can bring the very persecutor to faith in Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Well, listen to this. Denton Lotz, who was a leader of the Baptist World Alliance, shared this true story in 1999 at the, the Arkansas State Convention. A Romanian woman that he had met accepted Christ as her Savior and was immediately transformed by the unbelievable love of God. And so she began going into restaurants and meekly and quietly yet bravely begin, began simply declaring to all she could find, Jesus loves you. She came to a railroad station and shared this very message with two men who were drunk. And immediately one of the men slapped her across the face and she looked at him and declared, in the name of Jesus, I forgive you. As the men continued to beat her, she continued to testify to the love and forgiveness of Jesus. And finally, they left her almost dead where she was found in that station by other believers and taken home and nursed back to health. A year later, having finally recovered, she was sitting on the outside porch in the, near the front door of her home. And a passerby noticed her. He stopped and he turned around and he came up there and he said to her, I am a believer. And in order to test his sincerity, because she was fearful that he might have been trying to trick her, she said, get down on your knees right there, right here, and give praise to God out loud. And he did it. And so she invited him in for something to drink. And he said, don't you know who I am? I'm the man who beat you up a year ago. And every time I hit you, you would say to me, in the name of Jesus, I forgive you. And it's because of your testimony that I could not help but turn to Christ. Friends, can you pray? For God's grace, goodness, and mercy to fall on those who pursue you with evil intent. Whether they're in your family, your neighborhood, God forbid, in this church, at your job or in your school. That's what committed Christian living does. And Jesus guaranteed, if we commit fully to him, we're going to experience persecution and paul teaches us how to respond bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them let's pray lord thank you father for your goodness your grace and your mercy for us god spelled out so clearly in romans 1 through 11 and lord it's in view of that that paul has had the audacity god has had the, the, uh, the pleading, Lord, to ask us to present our lives to you. Lord, put ourselves on that altar and give you everything we have in our lives to live fully and exclusively for you. Lord, you find it extraordinarily pleasing when we do, and you've given us everything we need through the power of the Spirit and grace to do exactly what you've asked us to do.
And Lord, there are occasions when you're going to ask us to bless those who persecute us. Bless and do not curse them. And Lord, I pray that we would have the power of the Spirit to do that. Lord, that we would be displays of your grace and through that genuine, erstwhile, sincere, gracious living, you might open the eyes of the persecutor and invite them into your kingdom. Lord, we need help. I need help. This is not natural to me. It's not natural to any of us. But by the supernatural power of the Spirit of God, we can live this way. And we ask for your help to do it. And in Jesus' name, amen.